I'm recording this message just after finishing recording with Christopher Ketchum. And I realized after recording that I forgot to ask him about something. If you go to his webpage, ChristopherKetchum.com, and I'll link to it, and you go to his statement of purpose, you'll see that he's got a nonprofit denatured. You'll hear when I talk to him that he's got this mix of speaking about topics that are very important for sustainability, population, uh, growth and limits to growth and things like that. And he also writes for mainstream stuff. And the overlap of that is very, very limited. So I highly recommend going to ChristopherKetchum.com and checking out his statement of purpose, reading it. Maybe I'll bring him back sometime and go into more depth with it and consider supporting this. So he's got a journalism nonprofit. I think it's really worth checking out. And well, here's Chris Ketchum. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Christopher Ketchum. Chris, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm going to read. We, now, we, we were just talking before hitting record, and you're just getting it. I was like, wait, wait, let's hit record. So I'm going to quick uh, read the brief bio that you have on your page, that you're a freelance writer for more than 20 years. You've published in Harper's, Counterpunch, National Geographic, Interesting Hustler, Penthouse, New York Times, Pacific Standard. The Pacific Standard story or stories, that's where I came to you from. Sierra, uh, and a bunch of others, Vanity Fair, New Republic, Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, Salon. I hope I didn't say that too quickly. In many of the websites and journal and newspapers, large and small, uh, your book, This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West, is a product of, of years in the last wild places. Uh, and you're up in the Catskill Mountains of New York. Now, I found you because I found you, someone pointed to an article of yours on growth. And I found what seems to me a rare and possibly unique journalist covering things like population, growth, limits to growth, and other topics that I see books about and I talk to people about, but I just don't see journalism about. I think other journalists are scared to touch these topics. Maybe they want stories that are like engaging, which is yours are engaging stories as well, more than useful information. But you don't come off as in the in what I've read, it doesn't come off as dogmatic or didactic. And then when I went to your page to find more, and I think I actually read some of your stories from a long time ago, like 10, 15 years ago at the time. I think at Harper's, there was one about not the Bureau of Land Management, but these guys who were um, like killing animals, like almost cruelly for fun. It was an article at Harper's that appeared in 2015. It was called, the, or I think 2016, The Rogue Agency. It was about the, U the U.S. Department of uh, Agriculture's uh, wildlife services, which is a, a branch of the U.S. government, that basically taxpayers fund to kill tens of thousands of animals every year on behalf of the of the livestock industry. And then there's a lot of um, ranchers who are just like offloading their work onto someone else, and, and we're paying for it. Well, and of course, of course. I mean, that's part. That's one of the central themes of my book is how you have. Ranching culture in the American West—that's um—that is claims to be self-reliant and independent and resilient and 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 hardworking, but in fact they're they're feeding off the federal government's teat on a regular basis in order to survive and being massively subsidized by taxpayers and and subsidized by the way to destroy our public lands to despoil and pollute and lay waste to the last wild places of the American West by over overstocking those places with cattle. Sort of like the way we're overstocking the planet with homo sapiens. Yeah, I want to get to population, limits to growth, because your stuff on limits to growth, you actually explain it and go through. I mean, almost everything I see on limits to growth brings out a few total misreadings of the book and the concept that they say, oh, they got this little thing wrong. And that's not what they were doing. And you, you, you get it. And no one else does. No one else in journalism does. Well, let me, let me tell you something, man. There's a whole class of gatekeepers in the media who run places like the New York Times and the LA Times, et cetera, et cetera, um, who are wedded to the existing growthist system. And I use that term very specifically. Growthist is a, or growthism is an ideology that pervades all of modern society. 
You can be a commie, you can be a capitalist, you can be in China or Russia or France, or you can be Trump, you can be Clinton, you can be Joe Biden. All these parties are devotees of growthism. The idea that we, uh, as a planetary civilization, will solve all our problems by continued economic and population growth. While at the same time, Almost all our problems are being produced by continued unrestrained economic and population growth. So, so it basically it's just, you know, you're dealing with children, really. These are deluded children who run, the, who run the system. And the adults in the room are the ecologists, the biophysicists, the biologists who understand exactly how earth systems work. And they understand that earth systems are finite. And they understand that you cannot load on top of a finite earth system, right? A growthist system that knows no bounds to its ambitions. So, so you have, so in the media, in the major media, you have a lot of journalists and especially editors who do not question this religion, this faith that pervades all. It's like the air we breathe, man. Growth is the air we breathe. And, and to cut yourself off from that is to cut yourself off from, well, from a certain amount of oxygen in the media world. So I'm curious how, how you get through then because you've made it past some of the gatekeepers and also... By using reason. <laughs> by using, by, using, by <laughs> applying reason facts, logic, and science to this situation. And there are very many gatekeepers who are willing to open their eyes and see past their faith, right? Because faith is, of course, irrational based on superstition and lies. And so if you're able to, to use reason and science and facts, you can break through the delusions of this religion, of the growthist religion. Well, I've seen a lot of people that believe in growth, one of the first things they say, and there's almost like this jockeying to see who gets to say it first, because if you say it first, then the other person's on the defensive, which is something like, this has lifted more people out of poverty than anything before. We are doing this for the most helpless. They want to achieve what we have. And for a long time, I was like, how do I respond to that? And then I was like, they're just saying, they, maybe they believe it when they say it, but- um, Well, here's the problem. The problem is that once you stop growth, in order to achieve some measure of social and economic justice, you are necessarily on a path of redistribution. Because there is enough wealth in the world right now to lift everybody out of poverty, man. All you need to do is seize it and give it to the poor. It's real simple. But that's, that's a program of, ex, of authoritarian redistribution, which we don't want. Right. Well, it, it doesn't have to be authoritarian. No, it doesn't have to be authoritarian. But I think that that there is a point at which you're going to have extreme resistance by wealthy folks to that redistribution. And then how do you how do you deal with that resistance? Yeah, because usually if they succeeded in the system, they believe in the values of the system and they believe the values of the system will help everyone. Right. And so to their ears, they're thinking, well, if you take away our wealth then you're taking away the motivation to do make all these improvements, which sounds right to their ears. I mean, it helps. It works for them. And there's also the enormous, the enormous ecological and environmental costs so far, right? In the um, enrichment of the developed world. Okay. You have another four to five billion people who want to be just like the developed world, right? And as rich as the developed world. The cost of that enrichment of those other billions of people will be beyond anything the earth can sustain. So my idea, and I think, or rather the idea that I've um, come to embrace, and this is, again, it's not... This is not me. This is just I'm reading ecologists and biologists and biophysicists and people who understand the limits to growth on a, on a finite earth system, right? Uh, it seems to me that, 
okay, we've got enough wealth. We just need to take some of that wealth and give it to the poor and we don't need to grow anymore. Okay, very good. How do you do that? I don't know how you do that. Well, all right. Oh, crap. I was about to ask you about your reading limits to growth and how you came to it in the first place. But also in terms of, I don't take for granted that they want to be like us because the more that I learn about indigenous cultures, and I don't pretend to be an anthropologist, I don't pretend to know much, you know, but, but I keep moving toward more sustainability. In two and a half years, I dropped my um, global footprint by over 90%, loved the experience, found that it improved my life in a way that I never expected it to. This was contrary to my expectations. And that led me to reduce more. And the more that I, every step I take, the more I find it connects me with, you know, everyone's like, oh, other people can't do it. And they have it totally backward. Everyone can save money. Everyone can save time. And more importantly, it, it puts me in touch with indigenous peoples and indigenous cultures and learning across space and time of, you know, when I unplug my fridge, I have to learn what people do in other places with no fridges and what people used to do. Just do note, do note that indigenous cultures are increasingly few and far between. Hanging on by and, thread. And hanging on by a thread. And the dominant culture in the developing world is uh, a mimicry of Western culture, of the culture of growth, affluence, technology seeking and technology worship. China being the primary example. Chinese don't want to disconnect, man. The Chinese want, they want refrigeration, air conditioners, cars, new roads, high tech, big cities, you know, gleaming towers. That's what they want. Okay. Well, that's Fair what... enough. Okay. But so the majority, I think the majority of people on this planet are brainwashed against indigenous culture if we want to use indigenous called the phrase indigenous culture as a placeholder for um people who live within limits or people mm -hmm. sustainably or people who live um, with a small ecological footprint right so i mean i'm sorry to say but we're in a, we're in a bind here man we're in like a terrible the more that i find myself learning from them the more i realize i don't want to go back to wanting the gleaming towers and all that stuff and I learned that, of course, there are some of them who want to be like us, but most, many of them, the reason they're still existing, despite the encroachment on the land, the, the, the murders and the genocide and the rapes and all that stuff, they still look at us in ways that we can't imagine if we are growthists. And they look at us and say, to, for us to become, for me to become like you, I would have to lose so much freedom mm. and so much equality and so much connection with my community and, and like, and all the Steven Pinker stuff of like longer lives and, and things like that. That's not worth it. Right. And, and it's awful. It's also off that. But listen, listen, you know, you have an entire propaganda and I keep you, I use the term brainwashing because I really think it is uh, complex of advertising and marketing that basically pollutes the world with images of affluence that then creates envy and desire in people who don't have those objects of affluence. So what do you do about advertising and marketing and the whole system of envy creating images that cause people psychic pain when they feel they don't have those objects, right? Yeah. It's what do you do about that? I mean, I've, I have, you know, I was, uh, I'm doing a piece for Harper's Magazine right now about a um, eco saboteur, right? Mm -hmm. Who's destroying industrial infrastructure. We got to talking about this and, you know, in our joke, we were goofing around, right? We're goofing like, well, so what do you do about all these systems of propaganda that make people feel bad because they're not affluent enough? And he's like, he's from Texas. He's like, well, just, just blow it up. <laughs> just, blow them up. just blow them up. And I'm like, I'm like, man, I don't want to hurt anybody, but it's a nice thought exercise because I mean, these, these, excuse my, my language, but these motherfuckers who are polluting the world with lies to get people to consume junk, right? Mm -hmm. They are the enemy. 
what to do about this enemy. I don't know. But well, it does recall Nelson Mandela and the Afri African National Congress that they made. My understanding is that they took great efforts to never put a, a person at physical risk, but to blow up things. Oh, they committed that. Yeah, there was a whole undercurrent, not undercurrent, but there was a a shadow network underpinning Mandela, a shadow network of sabotage, right? Underpinning Mandela's um, efforts to free South Africa from apartheid. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you go back to the suffragettes, man, the suffragettes. In England. Yeah, they, they committed sabotage left and right. Yeah. I'm going to go on record, not endorsing blowing things up. But neither am I, neither am I. Except maybe sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I also don't endorse the cops cracking down on stuff, protecting capital in the way that they do. Right. Uh, but I do want to point out that the more that I do... Yeah, okay. I've gone through these changes that illuminate for me a better way of living. And the reason I'm not... It's a lot of people describe me as most commonly extreme. And but I don't think of myself as extreme. I think for one thing, I'm taking all these little baby steps. So each step is small compared to the one before. So unplugging my apartment from the grid was small compared to going without a fridge for uh, at that point of about eight months. It was just unplugging. I, I didn't have anything left plugged in at that point. And so it doesn't feel extreme. But it's, really, for me, I feel traditional. No one had a, was connected to the electric grid more than 100 years ago. No one had a refrigerator more than 100 years ago. And they're fine. And I think it was before we hit record, I was talking about this reporter from the AP who was doing a story on me. And she kept focusing on the measurable things, nothing about the soul of what I'm doing. And that's really what I'm restoring is my connection to other people, whether near or far, to my values, to nature, much more to nature. I mean, mostly through my food, but man, I love, this is so little a connection to nature and yet so great that in Manhattan, there are Juneberry trees and I think they're native and Juneberries are unbelievably delicious. And it's like all is right with the world when I'm picking these berries and I'm no berry picker. I mean, I am literally, but it's not like I'm, I've never hugged a tree in my life. I doubt I ever will. You should try it, man. I hug trees all the time. I might one day. And, but it's so, you know, before 100 years ago, I would bet every human being who ever lived could just simply take a, a short walk and be in solitude in nature, in the trees or by the beach, no airplanes overhead. Now there's billions of people have no access to that, including the richest ones. I don't think we know what we're missing. Yeah. Well, that's for sure, man. I mean, I live in the Catskill Mountains, so I just walk out my door and wander out in the woods. So I'm one, I'm privileged in that sense. But no, I think, I mean, look, man, cities, you know, cities have always been, cities have been with us for much longer than a hundred years. And so the experience of a city is necessarily one of, of um, where nature has been subjugated almost totally or exiled. So I think people, I think humanity has had long experience of um, alienation from the natural world. I mean, look at the romantic poets, the, you know, Wordsworth and Byron and Shelley and, oh, even Edgar Allan Poe, Thoreau and Emerson. I mean, all these writers and poets were, were at the, as industrialization proceeded, reacting to the horror of cramming human beings into artificial environments shorn of a relationship with the natural world. So yes, it's a problem. And, and the predictions that urbanization is going to continue uh, apace. And, um, and, you know, by 2050, the great majority of humanity will be packed into cities. Now, there are those sustainability people, sustainability advocates who say, well, that's, that's going to be more sustainable. Maybe so. I don't know. But it certainly is going to be spiritually I think spiritually and psychologically debilitating. Yeah, I predict higher rates of anxiety, to say the least, if not suicide and PTSD. I don't know PTSD. On the other hand, there are people. You no, know, I have friends who just sweat. They say cities are the center of everything. I love cities. I love all the interaction. And you know, there, 
I mean, they have, there's something to be said for that. There is wonderful interactions that go on. And I visit New York City all the time to see my daughters. And, you know, there's, there's wonderful things about cities. Absolutely. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to condemn cities, but, you know, I do think that your point is well taken that increasing numbers of people across this planet do not have a, a relationship of loving kindness mm-hmm. with the natural world because they are living in an environment that's artificial man, the, the, the human made environment, which is basically a kind of, I mean, when you think about it, you know, concrete, glass and metal, it's an environment of death. I'm sorry to say, right. It's not, yeah. It's, you know, you walk through a forest sterility, Sterile means death. Yeah, I mean nothing yeah. living. So you walk through a forest, uh, like a like an unlogged, an unlogged, free of human intervention forest, right? And what what are you walking through? You're walking through an incredibly complex network of biotic communities, all communicating with each other and all functioning together. And like you are just underfoot. There is just there are just incredible numbers of organisms at work, right? Doing their thing. And, um, and that's really beautiful, really beautiful. If you maintain enough consciousness, right. To understand those communities, right. And to respect them and just be like, wow, I'm walking through a forest and this, these trees are talking to each other through their roots. Right. Wow, man. Yeah, now I I talk to a lot of people who recognize these things, and the overlap between people who can read limits to growth and understand it, and who care about related things is very small in my experience. But you seem to fit in the overlap. That, I mean, how did you come across that book, for example, and how come you get it when so many other people don't? I'm, I'm- my fa- so my father was a, a um, uh, urban planner, and uh, he. On his shelves, and I was always reading his books, on his shelves, he had Limits to Growth, um, Blueprint for Survival, which was published roughly the same year as Limits to Growth. Limits to Growth was published. No, they were both, both published in 1972. Blueprint for Survival was a, a book published by the editors of The Ecologist, right? The Ecologist magazine in, in the UK. So he had that. He had Limits to Growth, Blueprint for Survival, and then... Um, a whole collection of Lewis Mumford's works. And Lewis Mumford, of course, is the great social historian and critic of technology who's, you know, he wrote the city, the city in history. He wrote, um, cause he was an architecture for, for, for 40 years. He wrote for the New Yorker as an architecture critic. Um, and, but he was also, uh, you know, an incredible, he had an incredible understanding of how technology, how machine culture was reshaping homo sapiens into a, a grotesque grotesque creature right mm-hmm. and he wrote about this in a book called um the myth of the machine a two-part book and and so i read that was on my father's shelf so i read that so i read this this collection right you know limits to growth blueprint for Su- survival and lewis mumford early on i was uh, you know i was in my teens when i was reading this stuff and um and then forgot about it <laughs> mm-hmm. And went off and did all sorts of other things as a journalist. And in my 30s, my late 30s, I came back to Limits to Growth because I because I was interviewing a lot of ecologists and, and they were all saying the same thing. They were saying there are limits to human, there are limits to the human enterprise and and we need to recognize them. And so I went back to Limits to Growth and ended up writing that piece for Pacific Standard in 2017, um, The Fallacy of Endless uh, of endless growth was the title of the piece. Um, and you know, it just seemed to me so common. It's just, it's just common sense, right? Common sense yeah. that there, there is there that you cannot expand indefinitely, um, in within the confines of biophysical reality. It's like, look at any organism. Organisms don't continue to grow and grow and grow unless they're cancer. <laughs> mm-hmm which eventually kills its host, right? But the healthy organism 
grows to a point which is optimal. So I started thinking about maxima versus optima, right? Mm -hmm. Our society is all about maxima, not about optima. But nature teaches us that things grow to their optimal size, and then they stop growing because they've reached that point where they're in a healthy relationship with their environment and they're in a healthy, their size is, is a kind of, I mean, this is a kind of tortured way of putting it, but their size is a healthful relationship with themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So obesity, for example, I mean, what obesity is, uh, it kills people. Why does it kill people? Because it's maxima. They have, they're, you know, obese people are not, uh, are basically headed for self-destruction because they breached the limits to growth. So uh, I've, I've been interviewing a guy, um, a, um, a geologist who's looking at limits to growth from a geological, from a geoeconomical, economic perspective. Okay. Uh -huh. And he says, he's a, uh, he's not, he's an Australian, right? So he says, uh, he says, I compare humanity to a 14-year-old obese kid addicted to crack. Mm -hmm. And the prospects for a, uh, a happy outcome for this kid are not good. And meaning he's talking about, you know, humanity's overshoot of the biophysical, the biological carrying capacity of Earth. He's talking about um, our outsized energy demands right mm -hmm. that will not be satisfied by um, renewable energy right because renewable energy according to this guy and according to many other um energy analysts who i've been interviewing um you know renewable energies will not be able to provide the um the energy subsidy to continue the party right the party of industrial civilization the party being um, incredibly profligate energy use, mm -hmm. which has been subsidized to date only by the incredibly energy dense supply of fossil fuels. So, in any case, the the, the broad point here is is um, it is common sense, just simple common sense to make note that there are limits to growth. End of story. And if, you, if you're not making that common sense observation, right, then you got something, you got to screw loose, man. You, you're like, you're out to lunch, you know? And so let me give you an example of out to lunch, all right? Uh -huh. Ezra Klein at the New York Times, I was mentioning earlier before you hit record, um, this guy recently wrote a piece. It was called, uh, it was called the dystopia. This is the title of his piece published January 8th, 2023. So two days ago, uh -huh. the dystopia we fear is keeping us from the utopia we deserve. And it's full of nonsense. It's literally just nonsense, a nonsense column from start to finish about energy, super abundance and the clean, the clean, clean, abundant energy from renewables. It, it's just not, that's not going to happen, man. It's just, it's a literally a, like a Jetsons Star Trek fantasy that so many people are, are in, have embraced mindlessly rather than thinking about, again, limits. Okay. There are limits to the energetic supply that we will produce with renewable energy. If we need to get off fossil fuels, we will need to reduce, just as you're doing, reduce our total carbon footprint and our total ecological footprint. We're going to have to live what will be perceived as straightened lives or limited lives, or, you know, uh, we, it will be perceived as a sacrifice. But as you, I think, are showing, it's not a sacrifice. Yeah. It's not a fucking sacrifice, man. It's, it's you know, it's simply, it's simply living within your means, right? If you've been spending $5,000 a month and you're on your credit card 
Well, you max out the credit card and then it's time to stop spending and live within your means and be done with that life and live a different life. Again, that you know, the advertising and marketing industries will say, well, you're sacrificing. Look at how sad you are not having all the objects of affluence that they over there have. Don't you feel envious? Don't you feel worthless for not having those objects? What about, oh, look at all these people on Instagram. They've got all these wonderful objects, these dead, dead things that somehow bring them, like make your soul enriched, these dead objects. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be like a, you know, if we were to, if society was to make this transition towards true sustainability and that it would be perceived or it would be made to perceive by the brainwashing marketing propaganda complexes as a sacrifice. And we will be told, my God, man, you know, you, you can't do that. You're not affluent anymore. Don't you want to spend your money on dead objects that enrich your soul? Yeah. So. Yeah. When I was a kid in school, there were classmates who were spoiled, spoiled. There's no question about it. Everyone could tell except themselves. And they didn't want to be told no. But everyone knew that if they were told no, it would improve their lives. Yeah, they'd have a tantrum for a while. But in this case, being humble to nature is not... Right, it's being presented as sacrifice. And people believe it, expect it will be a sacrifice, as did I, until I started making these changes. And then I realized how spoiled I was. Yes, yes, and I'm, how being unspoiled is 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 a much I'm incredibly spoiled. I I know this about myself. I'm terribly spoiled, just in terms of all the energetic inputs into my life and the ecological footprint that I have. I'm incredibly spoiled. So, I'm I'm part of the problem. <laughs> I think. I mean, one of my big strategies is to work with. Okay, I support. 350.org, Extinction Rebellion, and organizations like that. I think it's very important to protest, especially and to and to reveal when laws have been broken and bring justice when just you know when. Okay, that's very important. My strategy is different because I believe that the, and I, I've found from experience that people on the inside, they also love nature. They so if if someone works at some big oil company or McDonald's or something like that. They're going to be terribly torn up inside and they're going to give themselves, they're going to give themselves the rationalizations and justifications to say why actually what they do is okay, as we all do. Mm -hmm. And they can be led to change these places from the inside. That's, you know, there's lots of things to do. And I'm not saying what I'm doing is the only thing. I'm not saying it's alone would do everything, but I think that this lost, I, I think that we can go to the most spoiled people. And help them see that they themselves will benefit from changing themselves, and then they will change the organizations with them. I, I don't think. I don't think so. I think the organizations are set in their. In I think that these are machine-like organisms. These corporations and and the governments that abet aid and abet the corporations. I don't think that you can reform that machine. I think the machine carries on. It is a juggernaut. It will move forward regardless of the, um, you know, relatively minor changes that say the personnel within the machine, you know, tending to its levers um, will make. I, I don't think the, uh, I, don't, I just don't see any, let's put it this way. I don't see any evidence of that, uh, any historical evidence of that coming to pass to date, all right? So if we're going to suddenly say, well, forget about history, we're going to change these mega corporations, these mega machines uh, in a way that has never been done before, okay? That to me is almost a form of optimistic delusion, frankly. To me, it, if we don't change them, they have to. Then there's going to be a collapse. I mean, the collapse is already happening for lots of people in, in the world. If, if nine million people a year die from breathing air, then it's already begun. Well, go to Haiti. Go to Haiti and Yemen. Mm -hmm. Collapsed societies. 
terrifying places. So yes, the collapse is already happening. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that uh, I don't think it's happened before. Things like it have happened before. The Thirteenth Amendment passed, uh, and there have been systemic changes at national levels before. Mm. Not the kind of change we're talking about, man. We're talking about well, a, 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 a complete transformation of the energetic subsidies of a civilization. And that kind of change, it's, um, I mean, look, you, I think the change will be brought about by, through collapse, but not, not the collapse, you know, that we think about it. A man walking down the street collapses, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's how, how collapse unfolds. I think collapse is, as Joseph Tainter puts it, right? Collapse is, a, is when a complex society decomplexifies or is forced into simplicity or a simplification, right? Mm-hmm. By circumstances, by energetic limits, by biophysical limits. So, no, I don't think we're going to reform the corporate system or the cap- capitalism. I think that what's going to happen is, yes, we are going to head towards a collapse. That collapse will then force simplification on society, which will be perceived as disorder, which in all likelihood, and let's pray that this doesn't happen, in all likelihood, the perception of disorder will then lead to the election of authoritarian leadership mm-hmm. to repair the disorder. So Trump, but Trump times 20. Mm-hmm. Trump, but a competent Trump. Mm-hmm. Competent fascist as opposed to a buffoon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where we're headed. And so that may seem that that's that's a kind of dark vision. That's very. I'll give you. I'll give you my mind is darker. Go for it. Is, I mean, I'm seeing. So there's going to be some place where there's a large number of people, depending on something like a, an aquifer or a river, like maybe it'll be the Tigris or Euphrates. That that one country dams it up before it reaches. So some river doesn't reach a country. And there's a war between those states, or maybe it's between India and Pakistan, and, and a nuclear weapon goes off, and uh, and then it just explodes. Then um, I, I feel like there's a lot of powder kegs in the, in the you know 1914 Europe type sense, not lots of secret pacts and balkanization, but in terms of um, very tight supply chains, very little, very brittle systems that are. When they work, they're super efficient, but they're not resilient to change. And so when something goes awry, suddenly prices go whack all over the world. Yes. And the authoritarian, what I see is not Trump, but sophisticated by times 20, but um, a breakdown at the highest levels, which leads to warlords and lots of small authoritarians. Uh, and But I don't see it happening if we reach that st- condition, which could be within our lifetimes. And I, I, you know, I hope not, I hope to prevent us from get, getting there, but I could see, um, well, my read is that the, the carrying capacity of the planet is something like 3 billion people at the upper end. We're at something, we're at 8 billion now. So it's going to drop well below three. I mean, it's already, it, it must be dropping the more that we um, lower Earth's ability to sustain life. That's right. We're eroding. So it's going to drop to well below three. So what you're describing, though, is a, a horror of immense proportions. It's a climate, yes. it's a climate and ecological genocide of billions of people. Yes. Now this is a nightmare. It's definitely story. possible. Okay. This is this is a horror beyond horrors. It is a it is unfathomable from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Just. I have written about this and I've done a ton of research about where we're headed. And yeah, I definitely see this type of mass death scenario as a possibility in the near term. Yeah. I mean, I can also see, let's hold off on how it happens, but if a lot of, okay. Can I imagine 330 million Americans in something like two and a half years, dropping 90% of their consumption. That's pretty tough to imagine. But before I did it myself, I couldn't have imagined myself doing it. So my imagination was limited there. It's totally doable, man. Vaclav, Vaclav Smil, 
who no doubt you read. I haven't read, but I... <laughs> he's an incredible thinker, very, very sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he just His most recent book is How the World Really Works. Yeah, I got it on hold at the library. Was, yeah. yeah. He, he, prior to that, he wrote a massive tome called Growth, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. All that growth. Um, no, he, he has observed that there is massive slack in the system and waste and the inefficiencies built in the globalization and the global system of, of trade and consumption is incredible. The amount of food waste is incredible. The amount of energetic waste is incredible. The, just the inefficiencies in a system that we're all told is the most, the market system, it's the most efficient <laughs> allocator of resources. That's a lie. Yeah. That's it, totally false. And Smill proves it to be false. So I think you're absolutely right. We could, 330 million Americans, yeah, could live. Now, if that happened. Much more, much more efficient lives. Let's put it that way, just efficient and cut down on their carbon footprint and cut down on the ecological footprint overnight, man. Like triple paned windows. This crappy apartment that I'm living sweaters. in. Sweaters. <laughs> fucking sweaters, right? This crappy apartment that I'm living in in the Catskill, right? It is like, it's a sieve, literally. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's why I keep it at 60. I keep it at 60 fucking degrees, man, because the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the heating system is totally inefficient. The windows are totally inefficient. It just leaks air. I might as well leave the windows open. You know, it's like, uh, you know, on a 20 degree day. Yeah, one of the things I talk about have have you seen the the YouTube channel Not Just Bikes? No. Oh, you'll love it. Yeah, I, I think you'll love it. I hope it's uh, it's this guy who grew up in Canada, lived in a bunch of cities, settled in Amsterdam, and was asking himself, "Why do I like Dutch cities so much?" And did a whole bunch of of videos, and he's still doing them, and he's been on, I guess on this podcast on you know it's not just bikes, and and I didn't know this. Amsterdam was overridden with cars in the 60s and 70s with plans to build superhighways into the city, wrecking what was there. And they keep doing more and more and more. You know, there's deliberate intent, sometimes making mistakes and learning from them, of redesigning a city to make it so that biking is the natural way to do things. And you don't want more cars. You know, you go, I live in Greenwich Village, which is a natural place to do that with. And everyone's like, what about old people? What about people in wheelchairs? And you're like, this would be better for them, clearly. But they they have in their heads more cars equals better, whatever. And talk about slack in a system of, man, when the pandemic happened and they said they opened up the streets to put the outdoor restaurant stuff. Beautiful. (laughs) They could have made those into parks and farmer's markets and made them pedestrian zones. And not it's there's so much opportunity I love the outdoor restaurants. I thought that was great. I thought because because it was an encroachment on on the tyranny, or it was a diminishment of the tyranny of the automobile. Yeah, I'll give you that. But they were taking parking spaces away but relative to what it could have been. I, I of, agree. It could have been much, much more bold. Yeah. and and visionary. I, I'm with you, man. But yeah, because I was watching not just bikes. I was like, oh my god, look what we could have. It yeah. could. So. Um, if America reduced – right now, America is not leading – we're leading the world toward pollution. If anything, we're following – anytime someone says, well, if we don't, China will, that's saying we're abdicating any chance of leadership in, in favor of the ones that we think are doing worse. We're following them. Yeah. Now, if we dro- – and all these countries are coming to us and saying, give us money because we want to be like you. And if we drop to below them in terms of pollution, then we could actually be in a place to lead – then we could have it would in, instead of being about growing the economy I, I'm probably putting saying what you you're probably thinking is is it would be about improving lives yeah by the sorts of stuff that when someone says you know what do you want your gravestone to say it's not a bigger house it's you know more singing and dancing and time with the kids yes yeah but again you know Arrayed, arrayed against that possibility, that optimistic vision yeah. of society, arrayed against that is a massive complex. The mega machine, the mega machine of advertising, marketing, publicity, growth, more is better, bigger is better, faster is better, etc. Addiction, yeah. So what do you, what do you do to dismantle that mega machine? How do you oppose the juggernaut? 
you know, which infects people's brains with lies about what society should be. How do you stop that? I don't know. Was that is that a rhetorical question are you asking? Because I'm asking you, how do you stop oh. the mega machine? Tell me, Josh. So I don't know if you've listened to my podcast much, but emerge from it is something called the Spodic method now, which is I think of it as a tactic kind of like nonviolent civil disobedience was for South Africa and India and America. But doesn't it applies here in some ways, but not so much. But it's it's a conversation I have with people where I start by asking them what the environment means to them and, and evoking from them their genuine, authentic experiences in the environment. So for you, you can walk outdoors and have it. But for a lot of people, they have to recall something from their childhood. And I dwell on that for a bit. And it's actually, this is actually my favorite part of the podcast is I've never heard the same answer twice. And everything that people share is really deeply meaningful. And once that's out there, and sometimes it takes, it can take half an hour for them to share just about how they used to pick apples with their grandmother in the trees that, you know, got paved over one day by some mall or, and then, but when it comes out, then the emotions that come with it, then I invite them to think of something to do to manifest those emotions, to bring those things out in their regular life now. What I'm doing is asking them to live their values, live intrinsic values of their own, which I contrast with saying, you know, uh, the Ogallala uh, aquifer is running dry. Here's what you have to do. That's extrinsic. It's not necessarily connecting with what's inside them. Mm. And when it comes from intrinsic motivation, what they do is meaningful. And I have them come up with it. I don't come up, I, I don't tell them, oh, here's what you should do. Avoid straws. I let them come up with it. So I, I, what I lose, I lose direction and I lose magnitude. But what I get is meaning and desire so that they want to do, when I have them back on a second time, and I say, how'd it go? They often want to do it again. And this goes for um, people in the military, Trump supporters, uh, evangelicals, uh, red state, hardcore Republican politicians. And as well as, actually, sometimes it's not, it doesn't work as well as sometimes with environmentalists. I think they have something wrapped up in their identity that has to be hard and it has to be big or it's not worth doing. Mm. Whereas I find that, I believe that the fastest, most effective way to get to big things is not to start small and grow. It may be small, but it's it's intrinsic. It's not small versus big. It's intrinsic versus extrinsic. And I believe that everyone has it in them, something, a, something deep and meaningful that they've had some transcendent experience or they had something formative when they were a child or maybe it was a pet that they loved. And one, on the podcast, I generally have one or two episodes with someone. When I work with someone one-on-one, -on -one, then I can get the, on, the, the corporate speak is mindset shift followed by continual improvement. That continual improvement is not like avoid straws and be done. It's learn from that experience, find out what resonated in your heart. What's the next thing? And then if I get them enough, then I teach them the Spodic method so that they can share it with others. So I live in, I've had enough people around me who are on that path that for me, I'm swimming downstream at last. I mean, there's my mom and my dad who are incalcitrant about this sort of thing. But actually, it's, it's difficult with people very close to you. But with people at, like contacts, it's, I'm not saying I'm batting a thousand here. But, you know, I had someone who, he lives upstate New York. And I walked him through the process his thing was, um, he just went out and picked up litter around his neighborhood, but he really liked it. And I taught him this product method. And he started doing it with people in a circle. And he said to me, I didn't, I mean, he knows that I haven't flown since 2016 and probably never will again. But he said to me, Josh, I think that I can see on my horizon the last flight that I'm ever going to take. Like he's not ready to stop flying yet, but he, he's saying not out of hardship or out of obligation, but of joy for experiencing what's nearby him mm. and to go from a few people that i know to get this to go viral and to get people to share it i mean you know when martin luther king was saying let's not fight violence with violence let's let's you know protest let's but non-violently i'm sure lots of people are like are you nuts are you, we have to fight we have to fight and not just be pacifist that's going to lose 
And I'm not saying the job is done, but a lot of, it worked in ways beyond what a lot of people expected. That doesn't guarantee that what I'm doing will, but it's what I'm doing. And um, it keep, I keep getting better at it. So that's my tactic and strategy. I think that it's got some chance. And, you know, I don't want to say I'm going to save everything. I, I don't believe that that would be the case. But I think that um, I think it's an important piece that's missing, that intrinsic tapping into people's intrinsic motivation. One thing that really motivates me a lot is when Mandela was in prison and he started learning Afrikaans and people said, why are you learning the language of your oppressor? And he said, and people, people might know better than I do, but my understanding is that he felt they're a part of a system and we want to, they can be an ally to fight the system. And I think that's, I mean, he shared, ultimately he shared the Nobel Peace Prize with de Klerk, who was supposed to be the enemy, but they together worked in some way to end, end apartheid. I mean, to start, the, to at least get it to a state where Mandela could become president. I think the analogy to Mandela here is inexact because, again, we're talking about a transformation of a societal transformation, whereas the civil rights movement, anti-apartheid movement were, um, uh, how do I put this? They were the rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm -hmm. So the deck chairs were rearranged to so that there was more social justice and economic justice. Okay. But they're still on the Titanic. That's the problem. So the again the to compare past movements that expanded the the realm of rights of human rights to compare that to what needs to be done in order to move the Titanic from its course towards the iceberg um, very different things we're talking about qualitative and quantitative qualitatively quantitatively different things. And um, and the task is much, much, much greater. So I can't argue with you about that. I, I agree with that assessment. Uh, it's um, and there were people who wanted apartheid to end then. And probably even among the whites, whereas now everyone's complicitness, complicity, everyone's complicit and the guilt and shame that people feel. This quote from Abraham Lincoln is to, has become a touchstone for me. Nothing damages you more than to do something that you believe is wrong. Mm. And everyone is doing stuff that's wrong. And that they, I'm, I'm, whether it's right or wrong, they believe that it's wrong. They know that what they're doing is hurting other people and they believe it's wrong. And so to avoid facing that internal conflict, we will deny and suppress and believe lies that we know, you know, but it helps us sleep at night. Mm. It's really tough for people to see that on the flip side to that is that everyone, everyone is complicit, but everyone could be on the other side of changing things. But as you point out, there's this juggernaut of, I mean, I think that if you really want to change, if you really want to change things. Yeah. There's going to, what's needed is some sort of revolution, something that will topple the power system. It's very entrenched, very stable. I don't have to tell you that. Yeah, it's very stable. Well, no, it's, it's, it's yeah, entrenched. I don't, I don't know about stable. I think it's actually weak, as you described, weak, brittle, brittle yeah. non-resilient. And uh, well, I could see it collapsing, but that's different than revolution. Right, right. So in any case, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so what I do, what I do as a journalist is I'm sort of like Sisyphus, right? Ever read the the great Camus book? I've only read bits of it. Uh, his his crystallization of existential philosophy. It was a, his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, right? And Sisyphus, of course, is condemned in Hades to roll a rock up a hill, mm -hmm. knowing that the rock will always roll back down. And he has to continually, so he plot, he Rolls the rock up the hill, it rolls back down, and then he plods back down to roll it up again. That's what I do as a journalist. Okay, I'm rolling the rock up the hill. I know it's going to roll back down again. Camus advised, love the rock. Love the struggle, even though you know it's meaningless. And it's all going to end in death and nothingness. There you go. Love the struggle. 
even though it's meaningless. There you go. That's that's how I view a lot of this stuff because I, I'm almost certain we're not going to change things for the better in the society of ours because nothing in our history indicates that we will, right? Nothing. And when I say change things for the better, I'm talking about uh, creating a society that is in loving, kind, harmony with Mother Earth. That's what I'm talking about. We might have a society that's more just for minorities or for gays or LGBTQ, whatever. Fine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a society that isn't raping Mother Earth on a daily basis. And I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I think uh, I think the likelihood is low. Yes, it's low to say the, to say the least. But still not zero. And right. Also, for me, one of the big things for me, one percent. I'll give it. A, I'll give you one percent. A one percent chance, man. Sure. So my version of your Sisyphus, which, by the way, when I, I lived in Paris for a year and I took a class in phonetics or uh, how to pronounce, you know, in, in uh, getting my accent to improve, and so I used to the opening sentences, "La the Sisyphus." I, I can't remember it anymore. But this, I used to, I, I had to read the same passage over and over and over again, and the teacher would be like, "Here's your mistakes, and here to improve it." And I wanted to say it, and it was weird. Like the signal went from my brain to these neurons that had been repurposed for other things by now, and I didn't. I thought I could just recite it, and now I've forgotten it. But so I knew like the opening page of, of the book by heart <laughs> at one point. Yeah. So my version of it is that ultimately, I mean, we, we grew up thinking like more. I definitely have said in my lifetime, uh, when I was younger, um, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And I probably believed that and, and behaved according to that for some time. But now, for me, is meaningful and purposeful in my life is how much I achieve relative to my potential as opposed to external things that are outside of my control. They don't bring me down. I mean, you know, I'd prefer to be comfortable than not comfortable. But in terms of meaning and purpose, how much do I achieve relative to my, my potential? So it's much more... Um, Victor Frankl, in that sense of, oh yeah, the concentration camp survivor, right? Yeah, who who spoke of bliss and love, and so what I'm I'm trying to do, I, I try to see what I can, what's the most that I can do, to live by my values and to help others live by their values, and um, that's loving the rock, man. See, that's uh, yeah. That's why Frankl, I think Victor Frankl says is saying basically the same thing. Yes, be, be loving, be kind, practice empathy, practice uh, practice joy, practice joy, generosity, and you know, and at the same time that you can assimilate uh, the terror of nothingness. <laughs> And the absence of being, at the same time that you can assimilate death, consciousness of death, and the overall meaninglessness of the individual life, right? I think that, to me, that is maturity, right? That's when you've matured. You reach that level where you realize your own insignificance, mm -hmm. and yet you still embrace your you still embrace your life as insignificant but also joyous and meaningful even though it's totally meaningless so i think nature is one of the big things you know i do you know roland griffiths the guy at uh, johns hopkins with the psychedelics and they did some study where people talked about taking psychedelics and it was it was like one of the top five experiences of their lives for a lot of them up there with uh, the birth of a child and things like that that's cool. I think what I was talking about with nature, nature gives that. Yes. And the absence of nature takes that away. And the, that this, that odd mix of um, meaninglessness and your own tininess and yet your own part of everything and the wonder of it all. And that's, that comes from nature. This is the subject of so many of the essays that no one will publish. <laughs> so I can self-publish them on my website, right? Um, but yes, this is the, this is the exact subject that being in the natural world and communing with biotic communities, right. And knowing your place. Yeah. It was automatic. 
Yeah, it is almost automatic if you if you're there. You're mindful. Yeah, if you're mindful. If you're mindless, like there is a certain type of uh, visitation to nature, which is mindless. It's the it's the guidebook visitation to nature. It's going. Uh, it's racing through a forest on a mountain bike to conquer to conquer the mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of this stuff is just. I mean, it's just silly. It's silly and, and kind of pathetic. Whereas, you know, the, for me, anyways, the true communing with the natural world is sitting in one place and being in that place for a long time and then walking the same trail over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, just like John Burroughs, the great naturalist who grew up here in the Catskills, said, the trails you walk today are the trails you will walk tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Same one, just walking that same path and getting to know this one small place and communing in that place. I think is very, very powerful, very healing and leads towards truth and enlightenment, right? As opposed to say mass tourism, right? Gigantic shuttle buses, disgorging just, you know, crowds of people who all cram into the Vista and take Instagram photos of the Vista and then cram back onto the bus. And then the bus goes to another Vista and they all get out there and they look at that Vista and they take another Instagram photo, man. And then get back on the bus. That to me is just absolute, that's madness. That's a form of mass insanity. Yeah. My version of that is people on the beach looking at Instagram pictures of other beaches, wishing that they were there. It's just, it's just it's, oh my god, man! This is why I always carry a hammer with me to smash phones, man. You know, <laughs> smash phones wherever you see them. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer phones in the morning and I'd have <laughs> phones in the evening. All over this land, yeah. All over this land, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking of the books you were talking about. The books around when you were a kid. And I was thinking of the books of Aaron. We didn't have any, any of those books, but we did have, I did when I was in high school, read Diet for a Small Planet. And that's what got me vegetarian because I wanted to be vegetarian, but I thought I needed meat to live. Diet for a Small Planet was also on my father's shelf. Yeah? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I read it and I was like, it took me a while before I actually did it. But then then I just stopped eating meat and I was done. And, and um, there's Our Bodies Ourselves. That was a big one. Literally big book. Uh, and... What else? There were not a whole lot of nature books. Hmm. On the other hand, my dad studied India, so there's lots of stuff on Gandhi around. Nice. And other cultures. And Gandhi also, you know, contrary to the stories or to the to sort of the, the official history of Gandhi, Gandhi never disavowed sabotage. Really? He never disavowed property destruction. No, he said he said it was one of the tools in the kit. Wow, now I have to go look that up. Yeah. Well, this has been a lovely conversation, and and uh, I really, really enjoy your work. I mean, it's and now seeing you, I'm going to reread it in with your voice, but I feel like you you hear your um, how do I put it more. I feel like you you tone it down for not it's not tone it down, put it in a more mainstream. How do I? You make it palatable for others. I guess you write for the listener for the reader. And so you're writing for, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I probably one of the reasons I'm not, I had a column at Inc. magazine for a long time and uh, I never wrote for the Inc. reader and it didn't go well because they all want to read about Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. And I wanted to write about sustainability and I could have tried to put myself in their shoes a lot more and how to make it, how to draw them in. But I didn't do that. But I think you do do that. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have a protagonist. You gotta have a narrative. You gotta have some sort of drama at the center of things. Yes, I mean, I the one of the most deadening approaches to journalism is numbers and statistics and blah blah blah. Readers don't want that, man. They they want they want to have a sense of adventure and a sense that they're on you know on a trail on a path somewhere new and interesting and beautiful now i've a lot of journalists say that and then they come up with stuff that isn't going to change the reader they give something palliative Mm. but you don't do that well no that's a waste of time 
That's a waste of time. It's a waste of my time, especially. <laughs> How come they don't do that? I, well, I don't know. Who you're talking, I don't know who you're talking about. You're talking about the, this typical. Uh, I mean, what, who are you talking about specifically when you say they? Man, I. I don't know. I'm thinking about. Um, I mean, most of the stuff, like a lot of stuff I see in Grist or The Intercept. I mean, it's really cool investigative stuff, mm. but often not like the readers. The reader will be outraged, but not connected yeah i mean look man there's a there is a coldness to journalistic objectivity and i've learned over the years there is no such thing as objectivity it's all bullshit you know <laughs> mm -hmm. no, no journalist is objective we're all coming to um we're all coming at issues and policy people politicians we're all coming at these uh various subjects right with a point of view, and you might as well let it all hang out and say, this is my point of view. There it is. I'm going to argue this point of view. And um, that's why, for example, Harper's, to me, is one of the great magazines um, published today because Harper's allows its writers to, you know, freely express themselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, if it, you write for the New York Times, for example, there's a uniformity of voice there. And there's the pretense of objectivity that gives it this sort of like, uh, like almost godlike, you know, uh, authority, right? The objective journalist is, 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 is declaring from on high all truth. Well, no, <laughs> that's actually not the case. So. Well, to wrap up. I usually wrap up asking, is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything that you want to say directly to listeners? Oh, um, just um, keep on pushing the rock up the hill. There you go. That's it. That's the only message I got. All right. Well, Christopher Ketchum, thank you very much. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.